Good morning. Well, uh, we are going to be turning to Malachi chapter 1 this morning, and it's fitting, uh, as Matthew prayed, that our pastor is overseas right now, uh, and we are going to be talking about a verse that talks about God's name being great among the nations. So it is uh, fitting that we're turning to Malachi 1, and when you get there, if you're able, uh, please stand with me, and we're going to read chapter 1 of Malachi. Malachi 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And Lord, we... We ask and pray that this morning your name would be exalted and magnified and honored, praised, worshipped, that you would get all the glory that you deserve. We pray that Jesus would be honored. Uh, Lord, I pray you'd help me. I, I can't say anything even close to what your glory deserves. And so we ask that your spirit would help us this morning and would honor yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we come uh, to Malachi 1, I want to give you three snapshots, three little 
pictures to think about. And the first one is a letter that a man named Adoniram Judson sent to his future father-in-law. So fathers, I want you to, to think about receiving this letter. He writes, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death, can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Can you imagine getting that letter as a father? Uh, I think what's more amazing even than the letter is that he said yes, and she said yes. Um, and she actually did go, and she did die on the mission field pretty shortly after. So snapshot number one. Snapshot number two, uh, I want you to think about a woman named Eliza. And Eliza's husband is consumed with his work. He always has to be focused on it. He doesn't have time to give to the children like he really wishes that he could. And she ends up being the one that primarily disciples her children. She prays for them. She teaches them the scripture. She reads to them the Bible after dinner and line by line explains it. She begs God, save my children. Use them for your glory. And one of her particularly obstinate sons was named Charles. Eliza's last name was Spurgeon. That was Charles Spurgeon's mother. And if you've not heard of him, he was considered probably one of the greatest preachers to ever preach in the English language. So that's the second snapshot. And the third one is this. Uh, you all received or, or should have received an email from us a few weeks back talking about how, Lord willing, we're hoping to send out one of our interns, uh, Michael and his wife, Taylor, to Rancho Cucamonga to help with a church plant. If you remember, uh, Mark Holbrook, one of our elders, was up here giving the announcement, and he said, uh, we would, we'd like for each of you to consider going, to consider moving your family out there with them at this church plant. So take those three snapshots and the question I want to ask is, what fuels that type of life? What, what makes someone write a letter like that letter we just read? What would make you consider moving your family when you have a relatively comfortable existence here in Orange County? What keeps a mom or a dad going day after day, discipling their children when it's difficult and life is grinding on you? Well, what Malachi is going to show us this morning is that the answer to that question is God's glory, a, a passion to see God honored and glorified. That's what gets us up in the morning as believers, and that's what sustains sacrifice over the long term, over a lifetime. 
So as we come to Malachi, uh, we need to get a picture of what's going on. Malachi is the last book in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, excuse me. And so we need to get a picture of what has been going on up to this point. There's a, there's a lot of pages that come before it. And uh, just as a, a quick plug or advertisement for Grace Bible Institute, uh, my wife Erin and I were talking this week. And multiple times I told her, we just need to like go through the entire Old Testament and then it's going to make perfect sense. Um, we can't do that this morning. But our Grace Bible Institute is going to have a class, uh, an Old Testament overview class and a New Testament overview class. And so uh, God's word is so rich. It has so much beauty in it. We can't mine it all here this morning. But sign up for the class. Come. We will go through the Old Testament and see all of, uh, not all, but as much as we can of the beauty and glory of God's word. So just uh, an advertisement there for Grace Bible Institute. But um, when we come to Malachi, let's start, start in Genesis. In Genesis 1, God creates the world, and he creates it very good. Third hour is supposed to be the loud one. He creates it very good. Then we come to Genesis 3, and sin breaks everything, destroys everything. It breaks our relationship between us and God. It breaks our relationship with one another, and it brings the curse onto the world. And so sin has destroyed everything. But in Genesis 3.15, God makes the first promise. He says that someone's going to come who can defeat Satan who can crush the head of the serpent and who will restore creation, who will make everything right again and who will be the savior. And you keep going, you get to Genesis 12 and Abraham is promised by God that he would have land, a certain area, that he would be blessed and become a great nation and that his family is the family that savior would come from, that the seed, the savior would come from him. Then keep fast forwarding, you get to Exodus 19 and God gives Israel their mission statement as a nation. He says that they're to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? It means this, Israel's purpose was to put God on display for the world. All the laws you read, everything that they're doing is to display in, a, in an ancient Near Eastern context, what God is like for the other nations to see his glory. But through the rest of the Old Testament, what do we see? Israel fails over and over and over again. And you get to the prophets, and the prophets say, God has not forsaken you. He's going to keep his promise. He's going to bring a savior. He's going to restore this world. And finally, you get to, to Ezra and Nehemiah at the end of the Old Testament, and at least chronologically. And you get to Malachi, and it's like the worst movie ending you've ever seen. Because you've got the prophet saying, God really is going to keep his promises. He really is going to do everything he said. And then in Ezra 10, you get this picture. Basically, the final scene of the Old Testament is God has told the people that they're going to have land, but they have no land. They're in exile. God has told the people that they're going to have blessing and be a great nation, but they're tiny. And they don't have the king, the savior. He's not there. So it looks like God hasn't come through. The people are in the square, it says, in front of the house of God. And it's pouring rain. And Ezra is telling them, you haven't kept even the most basic commandments of the law. This is like, that's the final scene of the movie? This can't be the end. 
That can't be how it ends. And so Malachi comes right around that time when they've gone back into the land, they've rebuilt the temple, but when they lay the foundation, yeah, the young people rejoice, but the old people that remember the old temple, they weep just as loud as everyone else is rejoicing because it's, it's not what it should be. This, like I said, this can't be the end. God hasn't done everything that he said he's going to do. And so Malachi comes at a time when the people are discouraged. The people are wondering, what, what's going to happen? Is God really going to come through in his promise? And Malachi means my messenger. My messenger. And what the message of Malachi is, if you heard in those first four verses we read, God is saying, I, I love you. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't turned away from my promises. I love you. And then he's going to go on to basically say, wait for my messenger. My messenger is going to come who will prepare the way for the king, who will prepare the way for the one that can crush Satan, crush the serpent, make everything right. Look for that messenger. He'll come. I have not forsaken you. And so that's, that's kind of the message of Malachi. And I just want to get a little, little zero in even more on context, and then we're going to camp on verse 11. But starting in verse 6, God turns to the priests, and he says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. You see, the priests had forgotten who God was. They forgot that he was a loving father, and they forgot that he was their master. And you can imagine, God tells them that they despise his name. And they're thinking, you can imagine, we, it wasn't that bad in exile. We risked everything to come back to the, to the land. We rebuilt the temple. We helped rebuild the city. We're doing sacrifices again. We're doing everything you asked. What do you mean we hate your name? But God doesn't care about the outward things that are going on. What does God care about? Not, not sacrifices, but the priests, what? Their heart. He cares about their heart. He wants to be first, to have supremacy in their heart. And he goes on, he says, they say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? They were supposed to offer uh, without, animals without blemish. When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? No, is the presumption. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. And you can imagine the priest again, what? What do you mean you won't accept an offering? We've done everything that you asked for. We're going through all the right motions. And now we come to verse 11. And we're going to see two things. God is passionate about his glory. And God has a plan for his glory. God is passionate about his glory. And God has a plan for his glory. You can hear his passion in his voice here. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. So we're going to look at God's passion for his glory. We have to answer two questions first. First question is this, 
what is God's glory? We talk all the time. We want to glorify God. We, we think that we sung this morning that God is glorious. We use the word so much that it kind of loses some of its meaning. So we need to ask, what is it? And this whole next section this morning, I'm going to lean a lot on someone called John Piper. Uh, if you don't know him, Google him. Go listen to his sermons. He's a much better preacher than I am. But uh, I'll quote from him in a moment here. But uh, he's a great source if you want to study more about what is God's glory. But what God's glory is, the Bible defines it as the sum of all of who he is. All of who God is, is his glory. When you think of God's glory, think about his holiness, his complete and utter uniqueness. No one like him, no one that can even be compared to him. Think about his eternality. He had no beginning and no end. He just existed always. Think about his beauty that David says, I just want to dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon his beauty. Everything wonderful or good or beautiful you've ever seen or thought of or imagined or haven't even imagined is found in him. Think about his wisdom. He's never had a difficult problem. He's never been perplexed. He's never needed counsel or help or advice. Think about his freedom. God is the only one with really true free will. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants in accordance with his nature. Think about his simplicity. He's not just a bunch of pieces put together. He just is who he is. Think about his omnipresence in every place with all of himself at all times his omnipotence. Psalm 19 says that the whole universe is just his finger work, just the work of his fingers. Think about his omniscience, knows everything for all time, in all places, at a moment's notice, never forgets, knows every hair on your head, could tell you the story of every grain of sand, where it came from, where it's going. Think about his love that pursues us and is faithful to us even when we are faithless. Think about his mercy and his grace that gives us all kinds of good and wonderful things that we don't deserve. Think about his wrath that will perfectly recompense all sin in the end. Think about his jealousy that holds us tight even when we try to run away. Think about his righteousness that he will leave no wrongs unpunished in the end. He will have no unfairness. He will be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Think about his truthfulness. He never tells a lie. He could never deceive. He's never trying to be untruthful. He is unchanging. He is sovereign. He is patient. He is the fountain of all joy and peace and happiness and contentment and on and on and on. And we haven't even started to touch the fringe of who he is. When you think of God's glory, think of all of who he is made manifest. In junior high, we say his awesomeness, his majesty. This is why in the Bible, when, when his glory, if his glory were to come down right now and be manifest among us, we would fall on our face. 
Think about Moses. He asked to see God's glory, and God says, no, you can't see my glory and live. I'll, I'll hide you in this rock, and you can see the, the back part of my glory. Or Isaiah, when he sees God's glory, and he falls down on his face. Or when Solomon dedicates the temple, and it's filled with glory, and the priests can't even go in to do their service because it is so magnificent. Or Sinai, when it's burning with fire, and the people beg for no more messages because the glory is so intense. Think about God's glory when it's dishonored. Think about Nadab and Abihu and what happened to them. God's glory is the sum of all of his magnificence made manifest. Okay, so we know what it is, but the next question we have to answer before we talk about God's passion for his glory is how do I glorify God? We talk about this a lot too. We want to glorify God with our lives, right? As a church, we want to glorify God. Uh, Whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But that kind of loses some of its punch after a while. If you don't think about what does that what does that really mean? How do I glorify Him? Glorifying God is thinking, living, acting in a way that puts on display His worth, His supreme value. It's using your money in a way that shows money is not the ultimate treasure of my life. Christ is. It's using your time in a way that shows that I am not the ultimate treasure of my life. Christ is. It's going through disease or cancer or disaster and showing that this stuff in this world, my health, my well-being, my family is not the ultimate treasure. Christ is. This is a really ridiculous example, but it might be helpful. When you go to a fancy restaurant, say you order a steak at a fancy restaurant, you don't immediately reach for the seasonings and put seasonings on it, right? That's considered rude. It doesn't make the chef look good. It doesn't glorify the chef. What makes the chef look great is when you cut into that steak, you take a piece, you put it in your mouth, and you go, mmm, that's good. That's how you, that's what glorify, that's how you glorify the chef. In the same way, we don't come to God and say, I'm going to glorify him and give him all my stuff and I've got all this great stuff that I can give. No, you come, you glorify God by coming to him and saying, you are satisfying. You are better than life. I've got nothing good to offer, but you are better than everything. And then we glorify him in our life by using all the things he's given us to show that he is the ultimate treasure, not anything else. The way Paul says this in Philippians 3 is that he counts everything as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Okay, so we've seen what God's glory is. We've seen how we glorify God. Let's look now in Malachi 1.11. You see this phrase, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great. When you hear rising of the sun to the setting, we tend to think, okay, so all day long, like when the sun comes up to when it goes down. But it's talking spatially, from the place where the sun comes up to the place where the sun goes down. What's he saying? The whole earth, all of it. I will reign supreme over all of it. Quoting from John Piper, quote, 
He is always infinitely admirable in everything and over everything supreme, over all galaxies and endless reaches of space, over the earth from the top of Mount Everest, 29,000 feet up, to the bottom of the Pacific Rim, 36,000 feet down in the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Rim. He is sovereign and supreme over all plants and animals, from the peaceful blue whale to the microscopic killer virus. He is supreme over all weather and all movements of the earth, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, earthquakes, avalanches, floods, snow, rain, sleet. He is supreme over all chemical processes that heal or destroy cancer, AIDS, malaria, flu, and all the amazing grace of antibiotics and a thousand healing drugs that we do not deserve. He is supreme over all countries and governments and armies. He is supreme over ISIS and the terrorists and the kidnappings and the suicide bombings and the beheadings. He is supreme over all nuclear threats from Iran and Russia and North Korea. He is supreme over politics and elections. He is supreme over media and news and entertainment and sports and leisure. He is supreme over all education and universities, no matter what they teach. He is supreme over all scholarship and science and research. He is supreme over all business and finance and industry and manufacturing and transportation. And he is supreme over the internet and all informational systems. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch on planet earth over which the risen Christ does not say, mine, and I rule it. I am supreme over it. That is our God. That is the one that we worship. He rules all of it. And look, At the end of verse 11, he repeats again, For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That phrase, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies, literally, you might have heard it described as uh, God of angel armies. And that's true. That's a a good way of describing it. But it's even bigger than that. It's, It's God over all armies in all places, the host of heaven and on earth, all of it, and this is, think of, uh, you know how kings or, or chiefs in the old days would have a battle dress that they would put on, get all decked out in their battle gear. This is God the warrior speaking in his battle dress. My name will be great among the nations, magnified, exalted, worshipped, praised, And I know it comes in kind of a dark spot because he's rebuking the priests, right, for what what they've done wrong. But I can almost feel the grin in God's voice behind this. Do you feel? There's an explosive joy behind this of God saying, my name, this is the greatest thing that he could do in the world. My name will be great among the nations. I'm going to bring my children in. I'm going to exalt Jesus Christ. I'm going to save sinners, There is joy. This is not a sad or drudgery type of statement. This is joy like you have never experienced. This is what puts electricity in your bones and gets you up in the morning that we get to join him in this passion for his name. We get to also have the same passion that he would be exalted and magnified and glorified. That's fuel for our life. 
That is fuel for a life. A picture of what this might look like, a missionary to India, John Hyde, when he went to India, he went into a Hindu temple. And we have a diary that he wrote when he came back from the temple. And he wrote, I cannot endure existence if Jesus Christ is so ignored, dishonored. That's the type of passion for his glory that God wants us to have. So God is passionate about his glory in his overflowing joy to show himself to the world. By the way, to answer a quick objection, if one of us were to say, exalt me, I'm great, that would be sinful, yes? So why is it not sinful for God to do the same thing? God is God in part because he values everything exactly as it ought to be valued. Exactly in accordance with its true worth, that's how God values everything. So God, if he is the most valuable thing in the entire universe, has to have himself at the top of his list. Hey God, what are you most passionate about? Me. And he should be, he'd be sinning if he didn't. And what's more, this is our greatest joy in the entire world because we were made to delight in him to be satisfied in him, to rejoice in all of who he is. So when God says, exalt me, I'm on display, he's literally saying, and you could equate it to be saying, rejoice, delight, have find your fullest fulfillment that I created and intended you to have. That's good news. When we hear God say, my name will be great among the nations, that's like the greatest news you could ever hear. That is our joy and our hope and our longing not selfish, it's love when God says that. Okay, so God is passionate about his glory. God also has a plan for his glory. He also has a plan for his glory. And his plan from the beginning has been that his glory would fill the whole earth. Let's go back to the garden, back to Genesis 1 again. In the garden, man walks with God, yes? They experienced intimate fellowship. They talked. They had the relationship God always intended. But then you have sin come into the picture. Breaks that. But remember, when Adam is in the garden, the Bible says that God made man in his what? Image. That word image was used in the ancient Near Eastern context by kings when they would go conquer an area, they would put a statue, an image of themselves in the area to show, I rule this area. I'm the king over this area. So God picked that specific word and he tells Adam, puts him in the garden, tells him, keep it, watch it. He also tells him, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And we know that he's the Adam is his image, God's image. So it seems that the task God gave Adam was to extend Eden so that it would cover the entire world, showing thereby that God is the king over the entire world. God wanted his glory to go to the ends of the earth from day one. But like we said, sin comes in, and eventually you get the temple and the tabernacle. You know how you read, you, at least I've read and thought, why all the detail? God, like, why use this type of yarn and this exact measurement and this and that? And what you start to realize, people get all wacky with how they go on this. But what this is doing, it's a model of the earth and specifically of the garden. You, you look, the, the top of the tabernacle is blue. 
like the sky. There's a menorah, we would call it, but it's intended to look like the branches of a tree, just like in Eden. And the point of this, what's behind this, is that Israel's job was to tell the nations, our God is taking us back to Eden. Our God is going to make this right. Our God's glory is going to fill the whole earth, and he's going to reverse the curse. He's going to send the Savior. And it makes it really fascinating then when you get to the New Testament and Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and Peter in 1 Peter 2 call the church a temple. Here's what's going on. God gives Adam the, the job of taking his glory out into the world. He fails. The Israelites have the tabernacle and the temple. By the way, the temple has fruit all carved on the inside of it. God doesn't just love fruit. He's making a garden scene. To show the world... Does that, and that way to show the world, God's going to take his people back to Eden. He's going to win in the end. And now, the church, us who have the spirit inside of us, are God's vehicle for displaying to the world that he's going to win. For displaying to the world that he's going to make everything right. That's why it's so important how we treat one another. That's why Paul says we are a new creation if we are in Christ. We're a sample, a foretaste of what it will be like in the end, that God's going to restore relationships. That's why us getting along with one another, that points, that shows the world what God's plan is, that his glory is going to cover the whole earth, that he's going to make all things new. Just to show you I'm not crazy, you don't have to turn there, but in Revelation 21 and 22, go back to your Bible, you remember God's bringing in the new heaven and the new earth. And he sort of equates this with what he calls the new Jerusalem, the holy city. And they measure this city in length, breadth, and height. It's a perfect cube. Have you ever measured a city in height? Like, oh, I live in orange. It's about three miles by three miles by two miles. We don't measure cities by height. But this city is a perfect cube and it's, remember, streets of gold, there's gold all over it. There's only one other place in the Bible where you have a perfect cube covered with gold. The Holy of Holies in the, in the temple. God's plan for his glory is that the entire world is going to become a temple, meaning the place where he dwells and walks with his people and has intimate face-to-face -face fellowship with them. So you come back to Malachi and look at this phrase. We went past it, but look at this phrase. He says, my name is going to be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. Okay, if you've read your Old Testament, where do you, where do you give sacrifices and incense? Where? In the temple. In the temple. You can't offer sacrifices or incense anywhere else. Deuteronomy 12 forbids it. But look at what Malachi says. There's going to be a day when in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. What's going to happen? The whole world's going to become a temple. The whole world, God's glory is going to go out and fill the entire earth. And guess what? We get to be a part of that. When we share the gospel, that's, that's what the Great Commission is. Go into all the world and make disciples. You have the spirit 
inside of you. We are the vehicle that shows God's glory to the world, and as we go out and we take that to Orange, to Rancho Cucamonga, to the farthest place, we are the vehicle God uses to show, I'm bringing the world back to Eden. I'm going to make it right. And by the way, if you're among us and you don't trust in Jesus, you don't follow him, I hope that what you see among us really does point you to the fact that there's hope in Jesus. He can change people like us. His gospel works. If you will trust in him and put your faith in him, that on the cross he paid for your sins, you can be saved and you can be a part of this plan that's moving towards God's glory covering the entire earth. It's a great line. The, some missionaries a long time ago from Moravia, these young men were going off, and it's hard to nail down exactly what they said, but we think the best that we can do, we think that as they're leaving on the ship, they're going onto the mission field, they're almost certainly not going to come back. And they say, shall not the lamb receive the full reward for his suffering? Jesus has purchased people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and we get to participate in his mission. The lamb will receive the reward of his sufferings. He will bring in all of his children, and we get to be a part of that plan. Wherever God places you, whether it's far away or right here in Orange, don't spend your life pursuing lesser things. Don't buy into the American dream. Go to school, get a job, get, find a spouse, settle down, get comfortable, ha have a life where I pursue relative ease, long weekends, good vacations, and then retire and do crossword puzzles and take long walks. None of those things are evil or bad. But if that is what you're living for, if that is what your passion is, you will have wasted your life. I don't want that for us. I love the good gifts God has given us. Paul says we are not to be ascetics. We are to, to cherish and to be thankful for the good thing God gives us. I love steak and spending time with my family and taking a nap on the couch or I love chess. I love all kinds of different things. Those are not evil. Don't hear me saying that those things are evil. Those are to be received with thankfulness and gratitude to God. But our ultimate desire is to use those things to point to the fact that they are not the ultimate treasure in our life. God is. Don't waste your life. And so God is passionate about his glory, and we can be too, and God has a plan for his glory, and we get to join in it. And so my prayer for us in 2018 as a church is that we would be so excited, so excited to, to be a part of what God is doing across the earth, that we would make decisions as a church and as individuals that won't be easy, that might not even necessarily be safe but will have an eternal impact that make God look magnificent, like he is the greatest treasure. And my prayer is that this wouldn't be a quick, short-lived, flash-in-the-pan thing. I'm not trying to get you worked up about missions so you'll 
give a gift to the rancho thing. Or I, my prayer is that God would stamp and burn onto our souls a passion for his glory, that he is a great king, that he must and he will get the glory he deserves, and we get to partner with him in that. The lamb will receive the full reward of his sufferings. My prayer is that God would stir this in us and we would participate in his mission to our coworkers, to our neighbors, our friends, our family, to the 1,347 people groups with no church, no missionary, no witness. Some of us in this room might be the ones to reach them. Some of your children might be the ones to reach them. Prepare them for it. My prayer is that we would be consumed with a passion for God's glory that would affect how we speak, how we think, how we act, what we watch, what we read. Pray that God would raise up faithful men and women who do the work that God has given them wherever he has put you, whatever he has given you to do, that you would do it in such a way that it is filled with a passion and a desire that God in all his worth, all his value, all his beauty would be put on display by how we live. And my prayer is that God would raise up workers for the harvest from among us. Pastors, teachers, missionaries, Bible translators, businessmen, housewives, public servants, scientists, people in every place, in every aspect of life that are consumed with a passion that God's name would be great among the nations. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you, for, thank you for giving us your word. It's rich, it's deep, it's beautiful, and it shows you. You are the supreme king over all, and we are so grateful that we get to join in your plan. We don't deserve it, but we want to, we want to not waste our life, Lord. Help us to live for your honor and for your glory. Help us to, to glorify you with our lives. We love you, we praise you, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his name, amen.